Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. I'm Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, we are very fortunate to have Shiloh Brooks back. Shiloh Brooks is the faculty director of the Engineering Leadership Program at the University of Colo- Colorado in Boulder. Hey, Shiloh. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, so Shiloh, Jeff, and I are embarking on a little journey, uh, a journey through the Cyropedia by Xenophon. Um, we're going to do one book a week um, for the next eight weeks. Uh, and this is book one we're doing today. And Shiloh's going to give a little introduction to the work. Uh, and then Jeff's going to ask the opening question. So Shiloh, over to you. Yeah, thank you. And I, I want to say uh, I was introduced to this book by a woman named Lise Van Boxel. Uh, who, when I was a sophomore at St. John's College, left this book in my mailbox over the summer uh, and told me to read it. Uh, And I did, and I made a career out of it. So uh, I'm (laughs) grateful to her uh, for that forever. Um, The Education of Cyrus is um, a grand book. And by that, I mean, it's a book about uh, a political leader, uh, perhaps the greatest political leader uh, ever to have lived, in my view, uh, on the grand scale. It's by an author, Xenophon. Xenophon was a student of Socrates, uh, a contemporary of Plato, but different from Plato in certain respects. It's, there's much debate about the difference between the two. Uh, Xenophon wrote dialogues just like Plato did. Um, he wrote a book about Socrates called the Memorabilia. He wrote an apology just like Plato did. Um, but one of the major differences between Xenophon and Plato seems to be that Xenophon had a real interest in practical politics and even got into practical politics. Uh, in his career. And so The Education of Cyrus is a book um, partly fictional about Cyrus the Great, who was a Persian, this is complicated, I know, um, who was a Persian. Xenophon um, Greekifies the names, the places, and the gods. So he makes Greek a a real Persian emperor. Um, Xenophon's Education of Cyrus and then Herodotus's histories are the two sources that we have um, for the life of Cyrus. Um, It's important to point out that many people think, and I think this is largely true, of course, that Xenophon's uh, Education of Cyrus is partly fictional. In the same way that Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War is partly fictional, you'll hear speeches that clearly Xenophon was not present for. Um, There seem to be some events that are overly Greek Uh, even in today's reading, The Education of the Boys, um, which is Greek in character. But the book is about Cyrus the Great, who is a Persian prince who goes over to take over the entire known world. And the question is how he does that. And he does it with such mastery that Xenophon wants to take apart the man and uh, the political project to try to unpack what it is that made Cyrus so politically competent. Um, So that's the uh, summary of the book. Yeah, thanks, Shiloh. And uh, so, yeah, I wanted to ask an opening question that might be a a kind of familiar approach to listeners of this podcast. And I think it's familiar for good reason, because um, uh, for me, at least, one of the fundamental concerns of this podcast and the reason why it's called Combat and Classics is um, how the two things, combat and classics, go together, right? Combat, something like real-world events or even serious real-world events like success and failure, uh, the fall of empires and the rise of other empires, and then classics, uh, books written about real events, or you could say uh, repositories of things that claim to be knowledge about real events. So my question is going to be following up on, uh, I think, an uh, uh, approach we've taken a number of times to ask what the connection is between um, events and knowledge. 
Now, this is complicated a little bit by, as Shiloh points out, the fact that this is a fiction, right? So what we've got here is idealized events. But still, um, let me ask this, and it's based on something that Xenophon says in the first chapter of book one. Xenophon says, when he looked around and he saw human beings, he was really impressed, um, or when we, so maybe Xenophon and his friends looked around and saw human beings, they were really impressed by how much they didn't like to be ruled by other human beings. And it looks like this dislike is rooted in the sense that human beings have that it's better to be a ruler than it is to be ruled. Um, and so they would rather be the ruler than the ruled. They don't like being ruled. But then there was this guy, Xenophon says, this Cyrus. And thinking about Cyrus uh, led him to the opinion that it might even be easy to rule other human beings as long as you do it with knowledge. And so now we've got this book about the early years of Cyrus's life up to about age 16. And in it, Xenophon says he's going to talk about Cyrus's birth and Cyrus's nature and Cyrus's education. And we get a lot of stories. I'm just wondering um, in what we read for today, uh, if any of us detected places where we saw evidence of knowledge, things that somebody knows that might be, um, might enable that person uh, to rule over other human beings and even to make them happy to be ruled. Yeah, it occurs to me that there are two places um, most immediately that um, uh, knowledge seems to be present in today's uh, reading uh, and seems to be transmitted, I should say. The first place would be, I think the most obvious place is, is chapter six of book one. And this is where Cyrus's father, Cambyses, rides out with him uh, part of the way on Cyrus's first campaign. And he tells him a number of things about how Cyrus ought to lead. Some of things we could talk about he's never told him before. And Cyrus is stunned to hear some of these things. The second place where knowledge is transmitted is in chapter one, it seems to me, of book one. And this is just the free square, the way the, the, uh, the peers, they're called, which are, are the Persian aristocracy, the way they're educated. Um, edu uh, that wisdom is somehow transmitted from the older, the oldest peers to the boys, uh, the youth and the mature men. And both of these um, uh, sections echo the title of the book, The Education of Cyrus, insofar as both of these sections are explicitly pedagogical. Um, so I think either one of those places would be a good place to start. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And it might make sense to just go in order, right? Because maybe the later things depend on the earlier things. So um, let me try my hand at just an overview of what I took to be the structure of the so-called free square, and therefore, I guess, the heart of the, the Persian Republic. Um, it sounds like it's an area um, around a series of public buildings. It's divided into quarters. And uh, the Persian peers, um, so uh, these are all men, um, are separated into four groups based on age. And in general, each group is uh, ruled and educated by uh, a number of people chosen from the group a little bit older than it. 
Um, now, I say in general because there are some important exceptions. If I remember correctly, the youngest group, the boys, are educated especially in justice uh, as well as in some other things uh, by uh, members chosen for that purpose from the oldest men, uh, the elders. Um, and then there are these other two groups, the youths and uh, the mature men or the adults. And uh, those two groups are especially characterized by um, serving as um, utility people or police forces or military forces for the Persian regime. Um, and they do spend a lot of their time, especially if they're youths, just uh, hanging out, or we might say guarding uh, the public buildings at the center of this uh, so-called free square. So it's a pretty regimented um, system for the people who are involved in it. And uh, maybe the thing, Shiloh, that you're especially thinking of is, uh, because this is the thing that Cyrus is exposed to before he goes to visit his grandfather, this education in justice, among other things. Is that what you were thinking of? Yeah, that, that seems right to me. And not just in justice, but um, the moderation of the habits so that one doesn't spit, that one doesn't pass gas, um, that one is not seen going to the bathroom, that one is not seen coming back from one's uh, uh, sexual tryst with one's wife. Um, these uh, things um, and uh, the great moderation that's required of the soul, um, that may well be identical to justice, it's unclear. But um, that's exactly what I have in mind um, in book one, that the Persian, the Persians have a system. And again, this is very Greek. If you've ever read um, Plutarch's Life of Lycurgus, this is, um, it seems ancient Persia in uh, Xenophon's book is some ways based on uh, ancient Sparta. And in the Life of Lycurgus, there's a similar square with a division of the ages, uh, military culture, things are done exactly this way by Lycurgus. But at any rate, um, it seems to be that some kind of teaching injustice is, um, is transmitted there. And I'm always struck by um, some of the things that they do uh, in this free square that strike my students as utterly um, preposterous, such as <laughs> they keep um, the young men out of the marketplace until they're quite old. You can't go, I mean, you know, you can't go and hear um, people in the market shouting at you to come buy their wares, buy their jewelry and these kind of things. Whereas we're exposed to advertising, you know, 40 commercials during a single football game, you know, these <laughs> kinds of things. We don't, there's no, like the internet's full of ads, you know, these people, there were no ads. And so, you know, these, why do they do these things? What is it that, what benefit did they derive? But yes, this is quite an education and, yeah. and therefore a transmission of knowledge. Yeah, so we should probably um, talk a little bit about the one particular example of, in, of the education of justice that Cyrus cites to his mother to put her at ease that he's learned the Persian teaching about justice. But I can't, uh, I can't resist asking about some of the parts that I don't understand. So at the risk of going down a rabbit hole and with the resolution not to go down very far or for very long, um, does either of you have an interpretation about the shamefulness of spitting, urinating, uh, doing these things where uh, there's some kind of outflow from the body in public? Um, that seems like uh, something that might strike somebody as weird, right? And it might seem a little <laughs> bit unnatural. So, so what's behind this? You, you, Shiloh, you called it moderation, right? That's part of their education in moderation. But moderation, how understood? Well, uh, the first thing that occurs to me, well, there are two things that occurred to me. One is that it's not something gods do. Um, gods don't go to the bathroom. 
Right. And uh, so there's a kind of um, point, you don't ever see Zeus like, I, stop, I gotta go to the toilet. I mean, it's just not part of the, so you, you know, um, although they do have sex, which is odd, but at any rate, uh, this is something that there's a kind of uh, aim toward an ideal. Um, but the second thing that occurs to me, and this is a much more practical and much less profound statement, is that in um, Cambyses' speech to Cyrus in chapter six, which we'll get to later, Cambyses, I mean, he actually, um, he says at one point um, that you should attack your enemy, you should surprise your enemy. There are all these different ways to surprise your enemy. We all have to eat, we all have to sleep. And then he says, we all have to do necessary things in the morning. And then he just goes on, and I, I suspect he means we have to go to the bathroom. And, right. and, he, and, and so there's this kind of, um, uh, you're vulnerable when, when one's expelling things from one's body. One's not exactly combat ready uh, mm -hmm. at, that, <laughs> at that moment. So those two things occur to me with the former being, I, I suspect, the, most, the more profound one. Yeah, that, that's good. Oh, sorry, Brian, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, I mean, it also just kind of maintains a regimentation and a hierarchy um, kind of at all times because they are natural needs, you know, that we're talking about. They have to be done. But the fact that they're in a, they're required to be done in a very regimented way gets you used to um, controlling yourself, but also being wary of a hierarchy around you that is willing to control you as well. Yeah, that's good. That that was something I was thinking of bringing out too, right? That if you have to scheme to slip away so that you can use the John, uh, then you're trained in being ready for those moments that Shiloh was pointing to and that you're pointing to, Brian, where you can have an advantage over somebody by being able to control your needs, right? Whereas they can't. And so you catch them with their pants down quite literally. Um, and then on the God's side, the one thing that occurred to me also that the gods uh, are depicted doing is eating and drinking. So it really does look like there's a kind of implicit claim that um, the shameful thing is to uh, let stuff go out of yourself. Taking in things and continually growing in that sense is not shameful. So at the very root of this education, there's a, a kind of incitement to um, imitate the gods. And in some ways, I bet the Persians would say, oh, no, that's not what we meant to do at all, right? They wouldn't uh, be, be inclined to, uh, because of their piety, they wouldn't be inclined to admit that that's what it's pointing to. But yeah, act like a god. Act like you don't have to. Yeah. Act like all you do is take stuff in, and you can take in as much as you want. Yeah, or as little as the case, you know, there's the yeah. part where he says sometimes they, they, they only eat their, they eat their lunch for dinner if there's um, something going on during the day, and then they don't eat the next day until dinner, and they consider it one day, right. you know, uh, two days are one day. And so they have, I mean, certainly they take in, but they also have, a, a, I assume a god doesn't need to eat, as though, like, if a god didn't eat, it's not like the god would be like, I'm starving, and if I don't get, you know, and so there's a way that they can, they can also just totally turn off the need for intake and function perfectly. Um, you know, in the midst of what would ordinarily cause human beings pain, they are not pained by this. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, let's call that the edge of the rabbit hole or the, the end of the burrow <laughs> here. Uh, and let's, you want to turn to that story about um, the education and justice, because it's, it's a famous story. Rousseau makes a lot of it as well. So it's quoted in other writers. Um, I can take a stab at, at yeah. kind of telling the story unless one of you guys wants to. 
Um, it goes something like this. Uh, uh, Cyrus's mother is worried because uh, for reasons we'll talk about in, in a little bit, his education among the Persians has been cut short by a trip abroad. And uh, she wants to be reassured that he's understood justice as the Persians understand it. And he says, don't worry, um, my education is not lacking. It's in fact complete on this score. Um, I was appointed to be uh, a judge among the other young boys and one day, there was this dispute. There was a, a big boy with a small cloak and a small boy with a big cloak. And the big boy had by force caused the cloaks to be exchanged uh, so that the big one had the big cloak and the small one the small cloak and uh, called on to judge the disagreement. I judged uh, in support of the exchange because I thought it was fitting, right? The big guy should have the big cloak and the small guy should have the small cloak. Um, but I was beaten for this judgment, and I was educated that uh, the law, in fact, does not say the just is the fitting. The law says it is just to have what belongs to you, what you own. Uh, and so the big boy should have kept his cloak, the small one, and the small boy should have kept his cloak, the big one. And so don't worry, mom. I know what justice is. Justice is what the law says. Justice is to keep what you own. Now, there's so many details in Xenophon, I'm sure I might have overlooked something. Uh, one of you will alert me. But what did, what did you all make of this story? Well, um, it seems to, it comes at an interesting point in the reading for this reason. Um, Cyrus, uh, at, at the point at which he articulates this to his mother, his mother and he are on vacation, as it were, spending time with his grandfather, whom we have not yet mentioned, a man named Asiagis, who's the king of the Medeans. And Asiagis is a tyrant, and he's a tyrant in the deepest sense of the term. In other words, his word is the law, and his word is not consistent. Um, so he may prefer one thing one day, and a different thing the diff a different day, and it's not consistent. And so, uh, Cyrus has observed this, and he's a young boy at the time, and he's observed this inconsistency, and he's, he's observed his grandfather be, doing what a tyrant does, which is um, saying what the law is at every moment. And there's a certain sense in which Asiagis embodies precisely the principle of justice as the fitting, because what he thinks is fitting at any given moment is what he articulates as the law. And so you get this um, juxtaposition which is in a way bred into Cyrus, um, articulated in speech at this moment. On the one hand, back in Persia, what's fitting is not the law. The law is the law, and the law is consistent. The law doesn't change. Cyrus has seen that. On the other hand, with his grandfather, uh, and that's how his father operates, by the way, Cambyses. His grandfather, on the other hand, says, well, uh, what's fitting is the just. And Cyrus um, is... Uh, exposed to both of these, and as we'll see, both of these seem to exist in him such that he seems to want to have it both ways. And this comes out in this reading in chapter five, when we can talk about this, Cyrus gives a speech before he goes on campaign to the Persian peers. And one of the things that he says in the speech is that it's not fitting for those who are virtuous um, not to be rewarded for their virtue. That's the Persian way, and that's been that's bunk, and that's busted, and that's broken. So you men come with me, and it, the most virtuous of you will be rewarded. You'll get what's fitting. 
but he maintains the notion of virtue. In fact, he relies on the notion of virtue that the Persians uh, had bred into these men and had educated into these men. And so there's a weird way in which Cyrus is having it both ways. Mm. Um, but this seems, uh, there's probably more to this, but on the kind of macro scale, this seems to be setting us up for um, the great dilemma and also the great capacity and genius of Cyrus going forward, that he harbors both of these things inside himself. Yeah, and I guess it might be worth meditating just briefly on how um, dangerous or expansive the principle, uh, which you're calling the tyrannical principle, right? That justice is the fitting um, actually is. Because if you, if you employ that principle in this realm of cloaks, right? It's pretty easy to see that human beings differ in bodily size, um, but they don't differ that much when you really think about it, right? You know, what's the range? Probably seven foot down to three foot or something like that for human beings. And there are cloaks that uh, could be fashioned to, to fit that size. Um, it's pretty easy with visible characteristics like height and whether the cloak fits. But if you're not talking about distributing cloaks, but say distributing countries and rule over them. What's the relevant um, personal characteristic according to which the distribution of countries is fitting? Well, my guess is that that's an invisible characteristic. And my guess is we don't really know how much human beings differ with respect to that characteristic. And also, you can't just make another country the way you can just make another cloak, right? So this principle that justice is the fitting, um, it could be terribly revolutionary, right? In the sense that it could mean taking away countries from people who have them now and giving them to people who don't. Um, it could be terribly hard to adjudicate because it's based on an invisible principle as to what's fitting, right? So th this, this principle is uh, dynamite for any uh, settled regime. And it looks like Persia, or for that matter, our regime, right? Is one of these settled regimes like that. Yeah. That seems right to me. And it, I mean, the other thing, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the other thing that this does is worth pointing out as we set sail in the, in the book is that if justice, if the principle of justice as consistent law, naked consistent law is transformed into the principle of justice as what's fitting for each as determined by the wise mind of an individual, this makes the perpetuation and existence of the regime dependent upon the wise mind of him or her who is determining the fitting. And as we progress in the book, I mean, I've already spilled the beans. Um, Cyrus will take over the entire known world and that world will become dependent upon him. Mm. And he will determine what is fitting for each over the entire world, in the whole world. And you have to ask yourself the question, and this is a question the American founders were concerned with, what if Cyrus is no longer king? What if George Washington is no longer president? Do the institutions exist such that the perpetuation and success of the regime can go forward? Well, maybe not if the principle of justice as fitting is the sovereign principle. Whereas if Cambyses dies, the free square will continue, someone else will take the throne, and the ways will be perpetuated. So there's a lot at stake. This seems to be a little conversation about a coat, but what's really at stake here is the entire character uh, and success of the regime after the great man or the great founder, the Cyrus or the George Washington uh, falls or dies. Yeah. 
it's probably also worth per, uh, you know laying out the the way that these principles apply in the military context to it and i can think of at least one which is on this question of uh whether it is simply unlawful orders that must be disobeyed or whether immoral orders must also be disobeyed right because this principle that just is the fitting seems like a more extensive moral principle than the principle that the just is the lawful Right. And so there's something uh, uh, akin between the Persian regime saying, oh, whatever the law says is just and uh, somebody saying, oh, you're only allowed to refuse an, uh, an unlawful order. And then there's something akin between saying, no, uh, your personal judgment as to what is fitting, that could also be justice and saying your personal judgment as to what is immoral could also be a standard say for refusing an order. So there are all kinds of frontiers and all kinds of contexts in which this dichotomy that Cyrus is straddling and trying to embody both parts of uh, is relevant to, to concerns of ours, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it, it comes up in our own regime very famously, um, I won't dwell on this, but just so people can kind of see the context. When Lincoln um, suspends the writ of habeas corpus, and expands executive prerogative, he is conflicted and wonders whether the Constitution contains within it the power to suspend the Constitution and right. make uh, make the president that man who can determine what's fitting for each at a moment of crisis. And so he's reckoning, you know, he's 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 fighting with the justice, the fitting versus the justice lawful. And this comes up time and time again uh, in history. So I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot now, Shiloh, because you uh, are suggesting we've talked a little bit about the um, education of Cyrus when he begins among the Persians, so up to around age 12. And you suggested that is one place where we saw uh, wisdom being transmitted. Um, and then you also suggested we look at his uh, encounter with or his conversation with his father at the end of book one right book one chapter six mm -hmm. and i think we we should uh, get to that in a minute but between of course yeah there's the maybe the best or the worst possible argument for a study abroad program right <laughs> uh, cyrus goes to visit his grandfather who as you've mentioned is this tyrant in uh, media and uh, you didn't initially volunteer that as one of the places where we see wisdom or knowledge um, in operation. So is this a kind of accident and maybe a happy accident? Or, or how do we see that uh, vacation of Cyrus's among the luxury-loving meads? That's a good question. I didn't offer it uh, as an example because it's not clear to me that it's an education. It may well be a miseducation, uh, ultimately. But um, yes, he goes to visit, I'll just kind of summarize for folks, he goes to visit his grandfather, who I mentioned a moment ago, who is a kind of tyrannical ruler, and begins to become acquainted with their ways. The reason I call this a miseducation is that where the Persian, I mean, a great example where the Persians are very buttoned up, as we, as we said, because of the free square and very straight edge, straight laced. Uh, the Medians, I mean, they're, you know, his grandfather, they're getting drunk at the court every night. There's food everywhere. There's relishes. And by this, they dip their meat into sauces and these kinds of things where, you know, the Persians are eating greens and bread and, you know, plain meat. And uh, they, they go hunting and his grandfather wears a lavish purple robe. 
um, seems to uh, have other, you know, maybe makes himself smell better, may wear a certain kind of makeup to make himself look more beautiful. Um, and so the kind of austerity that you see in Persia is completely absent in Medea. And Cyrus, it, it's interesting, this shows, we haven't talked about Cyrus's superior nature yet. In other words, you mm-hmm. opened with the question, what, uh, what role does knowledge play in the rule of men? I think that's um, uh, 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 the primary lesson of the book, but the book also draws uh, great attention to Cyrus's nature, um, especially in part one, that Cyrus is extraordinarily good looking, that um, he's a very intellectually and athletically capable uh, young man. And to his credit, when he goes to Medea, he's not corrupted. In other words, the interesting thing is he doesn't participate in any of this. So he calls his grandfather out and says, why are you doing this? Why are you, why do you, you said these foolish things when your cupbearer gave you wine the other night? Um, Or why do you dip your meat and then wipe your hand on a napkin uh, after the relish gets on your hand? Isn't that, you know, isn't that disgusting? It takes you guys forever to eat your food because you're (laughs) dipping it in all this stuff. Whereas we just eat and go on. And whenever he's given the gifts, um, because he's the son of the king or the grandson of the king, he just gives them away to other people. He doesn't take them. He's not like, all right, new cars and houses and well, this is awesome. He just, he gives them away to other people. So uh, it's a miseducation of Cyrus in a certain sense, although he manages to resist and we'll see this throughout the book. He manages to resist becoming like his grandfather. And it seems to me um, what he learns in a way is, um, how is what, what the worst side of men want and the power that uh, his grandfather has um, to uh, gratify the base pleasures of men. And also, however, that his grandfather could be manipulated on the basis of his own desire for base pleasures, which Cyrus seems to say that that ain't me. I'll, I'll manipulate others with, by giving them gifts, but I won't be him and be manipulated by it. And so that's, um, that seems to me to be, in a way, what he learns here is that um, virtue can mean uh, lavishing rewards and enjoying the rewards, if that makes any sense. Um, I think that something, something that comes out of the Medea kind of trip for me in terms of knowledge is that I think that Cyrus gains a lot of knowledge of Eros um that you know he i think he's drawn to his grandfather for some reason i'm not really clear why but he sees what he can get from you know using eros um yes he sees that you know he can usurp the butler um he can you know kind of he can get what he wants is, is is what i'm saying and then he sees he sees it replicated with the boy um with the kind of unnamed playmate who is enraptured with him after he dresses up right after Cyrus is kind of dressed up and, and rouged up. I think um, this, this boy just wants to, you know, kiss him. And so I think that that's like an important kind of knowledge for leaders to understand that kind of natural attraction um, or, you know, just a knowledge of Eros and how you can really potentially use that <laughs> in kind of, you know, identifying people that are instantly devoted to you um, and being, you know, sensitive to that and, and how to not manipulate that, but how to use it to your advantage. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, 
forgive me, but I think that you've put your finger on something we have got to trace throughout the entire book because it's very, very important. And one of the things I mentioned a moment ago is that Cyrus's nature is elaborated in book one and he's good looking and he's smart and he's athletic. One of the other things that said is that he's most desirous of praise. He's, the, he's very desirous of praise. And you point out when he goes to his grandfather, one of the things that he wants is the praise of his grandfather. He wants him to love him and he wants to be the beloved of his grandfather. And he slowly becomes the beloved of the entire Median people by the time he goes home. And you bring up this very nice um, um, moment where um, there's a, Cyrus has what Xenophon delicately calls a, a boyfriend. And, um, you know, what this is, is the Persians, the, I mean, I think the situ this uh, particular moment is worth talking about some. Um, so Cyrus is very desirous of praise and he, his grandfather comes to be so endeared to him, all the Median people do, when he can't get the love of his grandfather, he gets frustrated, like his grandfather has a kind of secretary who says, you can't come see me right now. And Cyrus is like, who is this guy telling me I can't go see my grandfather? <laughs> to get the, you know, and he's like, because he want, he's like, There's, there should be no one standing in the way of his attachment to me and my attachment to him. And so at this moment when Cyrus is leaving, he's, he's, he's been visiting Medea for quite some time and he's ready to go back home. Um, the Persian, uh, the custom is that you kiss one another on the mouth, your relatives. So I know that this sounds probably odd to people, but you kiss one another on the mouth when you part. And there's a boy who's had um, eyes for Cyrus, who's sort of standing and watching this whole thing go on. And uh, as Cyrus is getting ready to leave, the boy comes up and sort of they begin flirting with one another and they starts to call one another their relatives. And, you know, the boy says, oh, you know, are you not my relative? And these kind and that indicates kiss me. Let's kiss like this kind of a thing. You're leaving. Let's kiss. And um, they do. And then Cyrus goes forward and he goes, you know, on down the road some. And the guy rides away on his horse and then he comes charging back, say Cyrus has gotten a mile down the road and says, well, you said we could see one another again after a while. It's been a while. Can we, and they kiss again. And I, I only noticed this um, yesterday when rereading this, Cyrus is the one who initiates the kissing. It, he kisses him. This is very significant because there will be um, erotic crossroads in the book that come up later where Cyrus wants nothing to do with love. And, and the other thing that, that's interesting here is that Cyrus cries. And I encourage you to keep an eye out in the rest of the book for the times at which Cyrus cries. A man of this capacity, he's already shown himself superior in battle to everyone in the previous um, chapter. Uh, he, he comes up with this idea to beat back the Assyrian king and his uncle and his grandfather are like, whoa, this kid knows some stuff. Like, this is, this is crazy. He's shown himself to be superior in every way. And yet here is this person who has the power, has some power over him and can make him cry. Um, and he's, of course, very desirous of praise. And I, I just say at the beginning, there's something going on with respect to Cyrus's relationship to love such that he wants it He's scared of it some. He doesn't really know how he wants it or what he wants from it. And it's, it's extraordinarily complex. But you know that this is important because Xenophon was a student of Socrates. And Socrates was the greatest teacher of erotics ever to have lived. And so Xenophon is holding up a red flag for you and saying something here. And what it is, I don't know. Um, but we should keep this in mind. 
Yeah, that's a helpful contrast uh, to the other simpler judgments that Cyrus seems to make when he's among the Medes, right? So he sorts things. He says yes to the cosmetics and the jewelry, and he likes them. It looks like almost uh, simply and immediately. He says no to the food, right? And he seems to dislike it or be disinclined to it simply and immediately. Uh, but here it's immediate but not simple. Right? It looks like there's an attraction and there's a kind of concern or worry. Um, now, let me try to press you guys a little bit because you've listed a number of things that um, Cyrus seems to do mindfully during his uh, time among the Medians, right? He seems to, he's not just a mirror who imitates everything the Medians do. He's not just a Persian fanatic who says anything different from how we did it in Persia is crap. Uh, he sorts, he chooses. Um, is it his good nature that is just making him lucky in his choice? Or do we think that the education up to age 12 in Persia has been so good in some respect that he knows something and it's on the basis of that knowledge that he's making the choosing? Um, maybe it's not possible to, to say, but what I think is riding on this is... Um, how communicable or how teachable versus how accidental Cyrus's course is so far. So do you guys have any sense of whether um, the choices he's making are guided by something he knows because of his education in Persia up to age 12? That's a good question. Do you have in mind something like, well, I mean, the most immediate thing that occurs to me is, um, he's taught in Persia what he should resist. Mm. In Medea, he sees precisely why those things should be resisted. He's never seen behavior like this before. He's only been told that you shouldn't do it. And so there's a sense in which um, uh, the Persian education has developed in him certain habits that complement his divine nature and which he doesn't, he doesn't question these habits. Um, it, and this comes out in a speech with his father that he's still, he's still naive at this point. Um, and we can talk about why he's naive when we talk about a speech with his father, but he's, in my view, the, and you may have a, a deeper view of this. I've not thought much about it, but the, he has a divine nature, which is unaware of, which is aware of certain of its aspects and unaware of others. I think it's aware of its own physical and intellectual excellence, but I think it's unaware of the degree to which it desires uh, love, to be loved, to be the beloved. Mm -hmm. And he remains unaware of this. I mean, this is really the story of the whole book. He remains aware, unaware of this till the very end. But, um, but he's habituated in such a way that a nature like that could immediately become a tyrant on the order of his grandfather, like Alcibiades or something like that. Just r roll through Sparta and, and Athens and just, you know, wreck shop, because, you know, but he doesn't do that. At least initially he doesn't do that. He, he maintains a certain, he'll do this across uh, the, the rest of the campaign. He, when they take someone's stuff, he doesn't want any of the stuff. When there's something beautiful brought to him, he doesn't want it. And so there's something about that education which um, supports him. And when he goes to Medea, I think he sees precisely the wisdom of that education, that if he weren't that way, uh, he would not be able to be loved for long. Uh, I don't think he knows that. Uh, and he could conceivably spin out of control. Do you have a... Uh, 
something else? Yeah, no, I, I don't know that it's something else. I think it's something uh, in that direction, right? So when Xenophon is done describing the, the Persian regime, he says, well, let's go through it one more time from the beginning. And one of the observations he makes is, oh yeah, this education that uh, all the young people go through, I meant to say all the young people who um, aren't needed on the farm, right. who can oh, basically yeah. afford to spend their lives um, uh, in, in leisure, right? Not making money, right? You mentioned they don't get to go to the marketplace. It's in part because they're being supported somehow. They don't have to buy and sell. Um, well, how many young people are like this? Oh, and by the way, Xenophon has also remarked that at every stage, people get kicked out of the process, right? You flunk out of um, primary school, you don't get to go to middle school. You flunk out of middle school, you don't get to go to high school and so on, right? So the number of these people, it starts out by an economic elite, and then the number gets smaller and smaller, presumably, as you go along. And so I was wondering if um, there was a kind of flip side to the Persian education that Cyrus had already seen through by the time he arrives in media. And that was part of what uh, is guiding him in his uh, selection of the median things he likes and the median things he doesn't like. Is some sense that uh, this talk about law is really a cover for a kind of force that's being exerted by a few on a lot of people. And uh, once you know that that's true, you have to be a lot more circumspect about um, indulging yourself because nobody's going to cut you any slack. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you, you mentioned the fragility of his being loved. I think that's connected with that. That seems right. And you're, you really, this is a brilliant comment in a lot of ways because, and I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, next time on, the, on our next reading, Cyrus will allow the demos to enter the military uh, and to gratify their desires. And it's a marvelous speech that we'll read. But I think you're you're on to something because he does he does seem to I had never occurred to me he may see that now and he sees uh, that he's if he wants to really take over the world, he's vastly outnumbered. The world's a big place. And so what's wrong with these guys? They're able bodied too, even if they're not aristocrats. So right. Right. Well, so maybe we should just say a brief word because we're getting uh, close to the end here about that last speech between Cyrus and uh, his dad when his dad clues him into some things, uh, talks about the birds and the bees, uh, not exactly. Um, <laughs> is, it, is it remedial? Maybe this is just the thing we can safely say in, 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 in with some brevity, right? Um, is the speech remedial in the sense that... Um, his dad suddenly realizes Cyrus is not a Persian. He's not a, a straight ahead Persian. He's been changed by his time uh, with the Medes. And so he needs to take action to somehow uh, correct that change. Or is this a speech that every Persian parent, we think, has with their Persian kid at around age 16. And therefore, it's just part of the Persian education in the normal sense. Well, that's a hard question. Um, my sense, uh, just from reading it, is that you would not would not want to teach this to every Persian. Um, and the reason you wouldn't want to teach it to every Persian is that the speech contains many very sensible things, but it also contains some things that if you taught them to your citizens, um, you might not have nearly as so stable a regime. And what I have in mind is 
Uh, and, and by the way, um, Cyrus's father uses the term, uh, it's translated by Ambler, tamer citizens. We want to make tamer citizens. And this is the great political problem, and I think Cambyses is running up against it, and it's a problem for rulers and statesmen in particular. This is why you wouldn't want to teach it to everyone, but he sees that Cyrus is on his way. And so he says, well, he's got to know. And that is to say that if we, um, if we taught them, uh, we, we need to teach them to do injustices to their enemies, to surprise, to cheat, to steal, to get ahead, to take advantage of others. We need that because we want them to be victorious in battle. But if we teach them that as that, they'll just do it to each other. And so there's really no way we can hold the regime together. And so Cyrus's father says, well, what we did is we taught you to do it to animals. And so you know all the hunting that you've been doing where you wake up early when the animals are asleep and you go get them, or you set them a trap and they don't even know it's coming and you give yourself the advantage. Do that to the men that you're going to fight. And Cyrus is like, oh my God, it's like the first time he's ever seen a person naked. He's just scandalized by this morally. And this, that's what I mean. There's a little bit of naivety here. And so my sense is that his education is defective, but if anything, this is a defect of the Persian regime but it's not one that can be, it's not a defect because it's not been considered. It's the nature of the political things uh, that it's very difficult um, to deal with this. Yeah, doesn't Cambyses even admit that once upon a time there was a teacher, I, I forget whether it was among the Persians or yes. not, who said, oh yeah, well, what you should do is you should, you know, um, treat human beings badly when they're your enemies and well when they're your friends. Yes. And then there were all these complications where people started confusing who were the friends and enemies or making different <laughs> decisions about that. And so that was the end of that kind of teaching, right? And now yeah. animals bad, humans good, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. You might think that a good Persian dad would be troubled by what he sees in Cyrus having come back from the Medes and would try to uh, restrain him a little bit. But if anything, it seems like this moment at the end of book one gives him the final push or a, yeah. an additional push. That's right. Yeah. And it's worth just one, one final thing. It's worth noting that book one ends on the note uh, which it began and which you drew our attention to because you asked us the question at the beginning of the podcast, um, what is the knowledge that Cyrus has? And book six or chapter six of book one contains all kinds of knowledge. It's very, you wouldn't, if you read this and you didn't know Xenophon wrote it, you would think Machiavelli did mm. because it's, it's very, I think Machiavelli learned everything he knew from book one, chapter six of uh, the education of Cyrus. But uh, not only that, uh, the thing I wanted to point out is that chapter six, and people should just check this out, it begins with praise of the gods, and it says the gods know everything and we don't know anything. But then while it's saying that, of course, his father says, but you should also know how to consult the sacrifices yourself, because you don't want to trust any of the diviners. But, you know, the gods really determine everything. And then he proceeds to give him all of this wisdom that's human and not divine. And in fact, he tells him, don't ever ask the gods for anything that you haven't prepared to do yourself. So if your men can't ride horses and they can't shoot bows and arrows, don't ask the gods for that because they're not going to give it to you. You trained to ride horses, you trained to shoot bows and arrows, and then you ask the gods and then they'll give it to you. And you're like, huh, I thought you said the gods do everything, but now you're right. saying, I, this is weird because we have to train too. Are there not miracles? And then at the end, 
the very end, it's, it's the, the whole chapter is like a God sandwich. It begins with praise of the gods. And then there's this massive amount of deeply interesting human wisdom. And then at the end, his father says, and don't, don't forget, son, human wisdom is really impotent in the grand scheme of things. And it's really just the gods. And then it ends. And so the question of wisdom, knowledge, um, is, it frames this book. And of course, the question of human wisdom and human knowledge frames in particular chapter six of book one. I think that is a great uh, note to end on. So uh, Shiloh, thanks so much for, for coming back and uh, look forward to seven more of these uh, where we'll be digging through the Cyropedia. And thank you, Jeff. Great, yeah. uh, great points today, guys. Thank you, gentlemen, to our listeners. It only gets more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Tune in next time for more on the Cyropedia. <laughs>